our devices are listening to us. Previous generations of audio technology transmitted, recorded or manipulated sound. Today are digital voice assistants, smart speakers and a growing range of related technologies are increasingly able to analyze and respond to it as well. Scientists and engineers increasingly refer to this as machine listening, though the first widespread use of the term was in computer music. Machine listening is much more than just a new scientific discipline or vein of technical innovation however. It is also an emergent field of knowledge power, of data extraction and colonialism, of capital accumulation, automation and control. It demands critical and artistic attention. Halcyon Lawrence talks to artist Sean Dockray, legal scholar James Parker, and curator Joel Stern about some of her work on the politics of voice user interfaces, in particular accent bias, Siri discipline and the ways in which smart speakers reproduce and hardwire long-standing forms of linguistic imperialism. Well, thanks so much, Halcyon. Could, could you begin by just telling us a little bit about yourself and your, your work? Sure. So I have, um, well, my name is Halcyon Lawrence, and I, I have a PhD in technical communication and information design. And I'm constantly trying to figure out what all of that means. <laughs> For my, my formal schooling was done in both Trinidad and Tobago, where I'm from, as well as in the U.S., where I did a master's and a Ph.D. Um, I've, I've always taught in STEM, you know, whether it's in engineering or in computer science. This is sort of the first time that I've been teaching in the humanities. That's been an interesting transition. Um, my work specifically, and I, the work that, that we're talking about is um, that I do research into speech technologies. Um, I am I'm very interested in the way that we don't often think about design, that speech and sound is a, it's a medium that can be designed and that, that needs to be designed carefully for a specific audience and a set of users. And I found that tension coming out of my PhD program um, because the field of technical communication and information de design has done this in wonderfully developed this wonderfully rich set of standards and guidelines for the creation and deployment of the written text and visual text for users. And yet when I look around, I don't see any commensurate work done in the area of speech and sound. Yet, if we went to the airport today, you still have difficulty hearing um, what's being said on the PA system, or if you're on the train, an announcement comes on, it's unintelligible. Um, many of the devices that we use that employ speech or sound are problematic, and, and yet no standards for the design exist. So I'm, I'm interested sort of very broadly in how we can start thinking about the design and speech and sound. I'm specifically interested in how personal assistance devices like Siri and Alexa um, 
uh, what I what I term disciplinary devices that they don't engage with everyone. Um, although I am, for example, a, a, a native speaker of English, um, these devices have a lot of difficulty in terms of understanding. And unless I make changes to the way that I speak, I don't get to engage with them the way others might. So that's sort of the more specific research that I do. But more generally, I'm very interested in how we think about the design of sound as an information medium. That was a fantastic introduction. Um, thank you. Um, you know, just the idea that sound needs to be designed, you know, it's just such a, and, 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 and speech and voice interfaces need to be designed in such a provocative way already to think about or framing for thinking about voice assistance. I, I, don't, I don't think I've ever heard of anybody put it that way before. That came out of a, that came out of a personal experience and you, you've probably heard me share it at, at some of my talks but um, because I was living in the U.S. and my my parents were back in Trinidad my my parents were handling sort of my financial responsibilities for me um, as I was living away I got this panicked call one day from my mother who said you're correct you know they, I got a call um, it was one of those automated voice assistance. It was from the bank and it said that you had eight transactions on your account. And I was like, surely I've been hacked because I wasn't using my, you know, my card. And so I went through the process of having to make an overseas call, logged into the system and heard the same announcement that she heard. And what I heard was a transaction, single transaction, it was it was it was not a Trinidadian voice. It was very clear to me at that stage. I had been doing a lot of work in terms of uh, linguistics, and sort of I understood why my mother would misunderstand eight transactions. But it occurred to me it was one of those aha moments that that entire message could have been designed differently to avoid any confusion. One would have been an appropriate choice instead of a transaction, for example. And so when I thought about all of the inconveniences that went along with it, uh, it was clear to me that this is not something that we're thinking about. Um, and that very often the concern that we have about the design of speech technologies is about whether it works or not. <laughs> and we aren't asking the question about works for whom, uh, who gets to participate, who gets left out, who gets represented, who gets heard, um, who gets to hear their own voices, um, and the kinds of inconveniences that, that people who are acting on the margins of these devices experience. Do you get the feeling that part of the reason that's given for not thinking thinking about the design of these very fully in the way that you've described is, is that the the technologists are just sort of saying, it's so hard to even get it to work in the first place. Why are you making me think about all these other things? <laughs> I can say it to you, Sean, yes. I, I, I mean, it, it may be more complicated than that, but I remember, so I, I did my postdoc at Georgia Tech in Atlanta. And I, I for three years, I taught a capstone course. It was a co-taught course. I was teaching tech comm. I had a computer science colleague in the classroom with me. And I don't remember what the subject matter was that day, 
but speech technologies came up and my colleague who's been teaching for years in computer science said, oh, but we've got speech technology figured out. I was just like, what? (laughs) And I knew what he meant was that the technology works (laughs) and and that there is something to be um, acknowledged in the fact that we have devices that speak. I think that often gets conflated for revolutionary and, um, you know, that it somehow signals sort of this major, major change uh, in the way that we interact with technology. But um, I don't know if you've come across uh, the work of Ma Hicks. She's a historian of, of science and, 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 and technology. She says, um, and I use this almost as a, a, a way of sort of asking myself about technology every time I encounter it. If a technology is reinscribing bias, it cannot be revolutionary. And so to simply say that technology works is not enough. Um, for whom is it working and for whom is it, you know, it's on the fringes? Those questions have to be answered. And I have seen time and time again, in my own experience in the classroom with the next generation of, of, of Google developers and Amazon developers, there's a lack of willingness to engage with those questions that the fact that these devices work is often sufficient. And that in itself, I think, is very problematic. Can you give us an example of a specific form of interaction with a speech, uh, with, with, a, with a voice user interface or, a, or, or an assistant that is problematic in, in the way that you describe and perhaps speak to some of the, the specific political and technical um, mm. dimensions of that? Well, I mean, I think about a, a couple of years ago, a couple of years ago, I was in Trinidad, and this is this is probably maybe about five, six years ago now, I was in Trinidad, and I was listening to a friend interact with Siri, and she asked for some information and Siri didn't respond, sort of the standard response. And I think my friend sort of just caught herself and she repeated the command using an American accent and Siri came to life and I was flabbergasted because I couldn't pull off an American accent if I wanted to. It was, it was one of those shocking moments for me because there's so much tied up in identity and accent and language. And it was one of those moments when if there was a dialogue between Siri and that user, it would have been, I'm not going to respond to you until you speak to me in the way that I have been designed. And there's no negotiating that happens in those, in those interactions. And so there's a politics of, I think one, for me, it was sort of sitting down in Trinidad and realizing that uh, this was a new form of imperialism, that this was an export of cultural standards in the form of a device. And having grown up and inherited a colonial experience, the issue of language and language discipline is raw for me. (laughs) Um, You know, 
Trinidad and Tobago has gone through Spanish occupation, French occupation, British occupation, right up until the time of independence. And so you, you sort of, you go through my island and you see sort of the markers of language of colonized or colonizers. And, and so to have this single device sort of do all of that work for you in such a short interaction was just absolutely shocking. And I, when I say I'm concerned, I'm concerned about the way in which we are, those of us who don't get recognized by these devices are robbed of our identity and trying to interact with them that they replicate the same kinds of, of subtle biases that exist in society with regard to language and accents. The story that I tell is that in Trinidad and in the Caribbean, I think the term might be used in other islands as well. We have a term called freshwater Yankee. And the term is derogatory in that it's it, you refer to anybody who sort of goes away and comes back speaking with an accent other than a Trinidadian or Tobagonian accent um, as a freshwater Yankee. But that was that was something that, that happened when you left and came back home. You know, there was a leaving and a returning. And to sort of see and hear that freshwater Yankee accent um, in somebody's living room with a device was just so problematic for me. I have a I have a niece who studies in in the US and she has said on a number of occasions that she speaks, she moves between accents um, as a matter of survival. But she feels very often it feels so inauthentic. And I imagine that is the experience that we have once we have to once we have to make those those switch between those accents to engage with the devices. There's an inauthenticity and there's, I think, a robbing of identity that I find problematic. That's a, it was a great answer. And I was just thinking about the, the sort of mundane example that you gave a little while ago about your interaction also with Alexa. I'm just trying to, to set your alarm, right? And then in the end, you have to give up uh, and just wake up 15 minutes earlier than you were intending. And just thinking about that, due to its inability to uh, recognize your voice mm -hmm. is that you're drawn into this uh, extra process of negotiation. And I just think about that also the proliferation of bureaucracy, you know, that we often find ourselves in, but, it, you know, it's also quite um, uneven in the way it's distributed. It, you know, it disproportionately affects people of color too, you know, and I think of like tra tra traffic infringement, um, you know, just the way that almost that these sort of minor infringements are just sort of weaponized to take up people's time. Um, and just uh, th thinking about how all that extra red tape comes with all these personal costs. And I realize it's a very mundane example, just like Alexa not setting the alarm properly. But to me, it's sort of connected to this whole regime of just, um, you know, the way that bu bureaucracy just... Um, yeah, it comes with all these personal costs uh, for certain people. And mundane for some, but not for others. And I think that's one of the arguments that I try to make, that for this, there are people for whom speech and sound become sort of a primary mode of communication. And so if these devices don't get it right, there's more personal cost. There's more, there is more at, 
at risk. And so I'm always careful about the examples that I use because I am not dependent on on Siri and Alexa to, you know, navigate my daily life. But for, for some people, these speech devices, not necessarily just personal assistance, but to complete a banking um, transaction or to book a flight or any of these devices that use speech and sound, they are dependent on good design. And just in, in that question of good design, like I think we'd expect that when it starts to go wrong, that there's some feedback or there's some recognition or some way of communicating to a person. Could you describe a little bit about when the speech interaction is going wrong? What happens? Like, how does the device tell tell someone that it's going wrong? Well, I think that's the disciplinary nature of the, of the device, that there is no negotiating. If you and I were in a conversation and... Um, and this happens in my daily interactions and in human-human interactions, that if I've said something that perhaps is confusing, that you don't understand my accents, even before you say something, maybe there's a facial expression that says you didn't quite get that, and I can repeat it, I can say it in another way. There are all of these strategies, for example, like I said, I couldn't, I couldn't conjure up an American accent if I wanted to, but having lived here for 12 years, I understand clear speech strategies. I can slow my speech down. I can hyper-articulate. There are all of these things that I could do um, that allow me to continue communicating. You don't put upon me in those interactions or demand of me that I change my accent so that we can con- continue to, to communicate. I don't get to negotiate with Alexa. I mean, 5.30, 5.13, 5.15, we went on. I lost that battle. I lose that battle every single time. And she's so polite. <laughs> and she never gets frustrated like I do. Um, so it is, it is this constant losing of a battle. Um, with a very polite, I'm sorry, I, you know, I don't, I don't understand what you mean. I think the other thing that's, that's sort of just striking for me is, I think I'm going to get into hot water one day for saying this, but it's those moments when you begin to see the unintelligence of the devices that if I, like I'm going grocery shopping tomorrow morning, I need to check that list before I leave here because I guarantee you, if I pull that list up in in the grocery store, I have no idea what Alexa has put on that list for me. Um, And I have, you know, sort of screen captures and and um, audio recordings of of her putting whole human beings on my grocery shopping list (laughs) without question. Like, John, do you really want to order John? Um, There's something so unintelligent about that. If you and I were talking and I said, Sean, you know, can you put John on on the grocery list? It's like, what's going on, Halcyon? You know, and so there's this, there are these moments when she doesn't work for me that signal the artificial unintelligence of these devices do you happen to know as a technical matter whether any of the companies um that produce these things um you know gather you know are they can they work out that they can't understand you and you know does somebody you know at google at amazon receive that data and then go okay well you know like 
I'm imagining how that might play out and it almost certainly doesn't, but you know, well, maybe, maybe there's a market opportunity here. If only we could, you know, mm. because, because one of the, one of the sort of political responses to the accusation of bias is always, oh, we'll just unbias it. <laughs> and, you know, that has a politics too, because inclusion also means kind of proliferation in a certain kind of way. So that the, you know, if, if we could just make um, more, um, you know, every accent in the world and every um, every dialect, um, you know, comprehensible to machines, then we would have, you know, eradicated bias, which is sort of impossible on its own terms, especially in the context of the unintelligence you're talking about. It's, it's politic, it's economically probably not, you know, rational, quote unquote, for, you know, these companies. So how how do you respond? How do, wh- wh- how do we confront uh, as a matter of education advocacy policy the problems that you're identifying i don't know it's a decision you have all the answers without resorting to a sort of you know an omnivorous um all of the accents all of the dialects uh kind of um politics or kind of a politics of perfection in response to accent bias and and other forms of language uh, and interaction biases that is that's probably my biggest question mark um in part because i don't work in industry and i don't have an insight into how these decisions get made my tracking of the development of the languages allows me to make certain kinds of arguments for example what englishes get developed um, and what dialects within the English language get chosen um, suggests to me that the market is driving, on the one hand, many, maybe not all, of the decisions. But the, the, the fact that standard UK standard, Australian standard, British, uh, all of you know the sort of the Englishes that have already been developed for markets that are far larger than a Trinidadian English or a Jamaican English, you know, you sort of recognize that if market is the decision, if market is going to be driving the decision, then um, I probably will never see a Trinidadian accent, um, which is one of the reasons I I argue that those, those sort of dialects are going to be developed by independent developers who are interested in hearing uh, and being represented, and that in itself is problematic because of the the massive undertaking um, to be able to develop accents and dialects for these devices. Um, but it's not just about the market, is because when you look at some of the devices and you see far smaller populations that speak, sort of like the Singaporean English, for example, that I think Google Home has developed for, it clearly is about sort of buying. I mean. It, it's not just about the size of the population is what I'm saying, that there's something else that's going on there um, that we have to examine. I don't have an answer for you. <laughs> I don't. Part of what I am trying to, to figure out, I'm trying to answer the question for myself, do we need the fact that we are able to walk around in some ways myself undetected as a minority in the U.S. may not necessarily be a bad thing. So that while it's an annoying thing to have to wake up at 5.15 in the morning instead of 5.30, if you ran my voice through and matched it to some surveillance device, 
you know, is it a bad thing that I don't get detected or I, I don't know if while I critique it, I don't know if that is the goal and that is what I should be advocating for for people of color. I know I didn't answer your question. No, that, that's, a fantastic, that's a fantastic point. And I, I was just thinking as you were saying it about how the kind of audibility and audibility thing just plays out so differently in different contexts. You know, I'm thinking of the voice biometric databases that have begun to grow up around pr- prison populations, which we know are, you know, heavily racialized but not just racialized and you know the way in that 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 will produce a certain form of audibility to machine listeners um that is kind of you know it's different to but profoundly related to the kinds of audibility and inaudibility that you've been talking about you know and and as as machine listening gets embedded through the so-called smart city and you know and, and becomes less a matter of consumer you know, consumer choice, these problems, you know, compound and proliferate. Yeah, I wrestle with that on the one hand. So you're quite right. You're starting to see these devices being used um, as surveillance in prison populations. Um, I don't know if you're aware that there have been some schools that have been using them as emotion detectors um, to sort of anticipate uh, angry speech and highly emotional speech. Do we want to be represented in those corpora? Is it what happens when we are and what happens when we aren't? I, 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 don't, have que- I don't have answers for those questions, but I'm very, very concerned. Um, what is sort of the threshold of representation? I think added to which there is, we are also sort of dealing with the development and the proliferation of these technologies in a highly unregulated environment where at least in the lawmakers in the US have no idea how to keep up with what's going on. And so, you know, there are no laws, there are no regulations. Um, it's the wild, wild west for developers out here. So where it goes is anybody's is anybody's guess. And I think the third challenge that compounds it that's concerning for me is that we invite these the these devices very often into our spaces and that that we are complicit in very often in the invasion of our own privacy. And we're sort of okay with giving up certain kinds of rights and privacy for the convenience of services. And we aren't often thinking about that we're providing data, voice data that can be aggregated um, and that can expose patterns about ourselves that we may not even be aware of or aggregated and, and exposed patterns about communities that we're a part of. So I think there's a lot to think about. I'm burdened by that. It's one of the questions that I'm burdened by. Um, do we represent, uh, uh, is it better that we aren't represented as people of color? Is it, is it problematic that we aren't? <laughs> um, I, I was wondering, like just following up on that, whether it's interesting to look at um, how companies have come to address problems of bias. I think it's uh, only been in the last few years that it's sort of, I don't know, it seems like it's come out as a publicly acknowledged sort of problem for machine learning to the point that I think even the companies are sort of recognizing, ah, yes, we recognize that the data sets that we're training our models on, uh, that there's uh, latent bias within them, 
I imagine that some companies have tried to address that over the past few years since it's sort of um, been identified as a, as a problem. And maybe by, yeah, have you found that in your research that companies have addressed it? I think one of the challenges, one of the challenges, even before we get to the point of identifying, companies identifying and acknowledging the need to address bias, I, I think we're sort of now, well, certainly not enough, but part of the challenge is that the, com- the makeup of these companies, uh, who gets to make decisions and who codes and who designs, I think, are problematic in and of themselves. And so um, the choices that we see that manifest themselves in the design of these devices, I think, are a direct outcome of uh, you know, who gets to sit at the table. I think the matters of inclusion and diversity are just a, a, as much about sort of who's sitting at the table, um, thinking about design as they are in terms of the decisions that, that sort of get filtered. And so to address, address the design of the device feels almost impossible unless we're sort of getting to the real issue of, of what's going on in tech. And that conversation, I think, um, is coming to the forefront, I think, of work by, for example, Sophia Noble, um, who's been exploring and talking about um, uh, radical, radical change that's needed in, in Silicon Valley and um, in the way I'm, I've been thinking a lot about uh, in our education system. So I work with a colleague of mine, um, Dr. Liz Hutter. We are having, we, we both worked at Georgia Tech for a couple of years, and we were sort of struck by uh, this orientation, this language of paternalism that emerged in our classrooms. And we're curious as to where our students learned it, um, that there's almost a devaluing of anything that isn't um, techie, you know, terms like pr- like primitive or really basic um, that work for whole communities. Um, that they're willing to, the students are willing to dismiss um, because there's a technological solution. Um, I, I'm concerned, and, and, and Dr. Hutter and I noticed this, the um, sort of a reductionist approach to problems that somehow we can take a communication that's so messy and, and so problematic that we as humans have difficulty figuring it out and to reduce that to, a series of ones and zeros just feels so arrogant <laughs> to me. Um, and yeah, so I, I think until we can address the human problem of um, hiring and training and education, I don't know that we can, any anything with regard to the design, design of the device feels superficial to me. Yeah, that already answers sort of my my follow up, which was thinking that if if the way that these companies are are recognizing and addressing bias, you know, leads to this this kind of like ability to recognize more voices, you know, then this kind of dialectic of like kind of inclusion and exclusion just shifts uh, because there's still okay, we there's more voices that are recognized, but there's still uh, ex- exclusions, and you're identifying that the, those those are happening just in this question of the design process. In the prior to even you know thinking, what does this device need to do? 
you know, who's asking the question, who gets to ask the questions and pose those questions and be at the table. Um, so that was a great, yeah, a great and, and how do we and how do we keep how do we keep the needs of the user at the center of design? Very often, I think that was my my greatest challenge in in teaching in computer science. That um, very often um, the people for whom these devices are being de designed aren't consulted. They aren't considered. They, their history, their needs, their you know, everything about the design just felt so acontextual. The example that Dr. Hutt and I are, uh, have been using, but also sort of now researching because it keeps coming up over and over again, is the design of sign gloves that do uh, signing. It just seems to be a pet project in computer science. People, are, students constantly win prizes and are given money. And every time it comes up, somebody from the deaf community will come forward and say that is not sign language <laughs> who is this for and they and if you ask them what is a solution they will say to you learn sign language <laughs> um you know and the, these communities are often not looking for technical solutions um but there's something in the orientation to um computer science and and coding that suggests that everything has a technological a technological solution and it's problematic for me to say that out loud is so shocking i grew up around technology i didn't realize that was a privilege my dad worked at ibm when i was a child growing up in 1981 i had a, a pc in my home i didn't realize other people didn't have a pc in my home um so i've always been comfortable around technology but in some ways the, the things that I'm seeing emerging makes me feel like a Luddite. I'm always sort of just, no, stop. Do we need this? You know, I have, I sort of tag new um, ideas as here's another solution to a problem that doesn't exist. <laughs> um, and, and that's something that we saw. We would see that students create problems for which they need to then design a solution. So as a, as a, Teaching the humanities, I think it's one of those, the marginalization of the humanities in these fields, I think is particularly problematic because we no longer, students no longer get to ask those questions that about the value of um, these contributions and who benefits and who's, who's hurt and, and, and who else has access, even if you have the best intentions, how can these devices be used in ways that you have not necessarily thought about i, I was think i was going to ask you the question uh, about the humanities because you, you said that you had you know just started teaching in the humanities context and but as, as i was listening to you i thought i always think that you know the, of this problem as a as a kind of or some of these problems as a you know quite humanistically basically that 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 if, if only we had, you know, broad humanities-based educations, if only we could come up with, you know, we could, I mean, the humanities are under attack in Australia right now, very explicitly in um, price, pricing signals that the um, government has just introduced. Anyway, it's a whole thing. But I wonder, has, you know, if you could just talk about your experience, because I'm, on, I'm, I'm teaching from the humanities and I want to defend, but, but, but is it, um, you know, we, we've just... Uh, establish a new center, supposedly, supposedly interdisciplinary center um, for 
you know, it's, uh, what is it, AI um, and design ethics, I think it is. And it's meant to be, you know, in, but on the, when I look at it, I, I, don't, I don't know if that's the solution or part of the problem, ethics washing and so on and so on. So um, I just wonder if you, could, if you could elaborate a little bit on your experience at moving into or around the humanities. Um, because mm. it seems like a lot of hope is being placed in that at the same time as the humanities are being dismantled. Yeah, I one of the things that I really enjoyed um, in the last couple of years was being able um, to sit in the humanities and to engage with technologists and recognize that we speak a very different language. We think about problems differently. Um, one of the things that I love about the field of technical communication is that we become almost these advocates um, who do the work of uh, negotiating on behalf of the user with technical experts. And so I do think I do think there is a role for technical communicators, for example, doing this kind of advocacy work, which is why I raise the alarm in my discipline that if we aren't paying attention to speech and sound design, this work is happening without us, that the rollout of these te technologies are happening without our intervention. So I think that's one of the, one of the ways um, that the humanities can help mitigate these issues. Um, if I sit at a table with a technologist, so they don't, so to me, these don't feel like basic questions, but I'm always amazed at what, and to see people stumped when I ask the question, who is this for? <laughs> that sometimes they've gotten so far away from just the, a discussion around audience and people and communities, or maybe not even had that conversation, that having somebody um, sort of just interrupt that world and ask other questions, I think, um, is an important intervention. I think the other kind of intervention happens at the, at the level of education. Um, how do we begin dismantling these patriarchs? thinking thinkings around technology and technology development um how do we and i think ethics i think ethics actually in some ways has created some of these problems um particularly patriarchal thinking there's an article very short article very provocative uh i forget it's by Williams, and, and she's actually looking at patriarchy in engineering and suggests that part of the, 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 the way she sees perhaps the beginning of patriarchal thinking is wrapped up in these codes of ethics that engineering and computer science codes of ethics suggest that these disciplines are here to save, <laughs> to protect, to look after the human good, you know, to produce these devices that will better the lives of people. And so you come into and inherit um, this thinking about technology that suggests that you are the savior, you are the patriarch um, and the guardian of, of humanity and that your devices are going to always go out and do good in this world. And so I think to think only about ethics and not think about issues of diversity, who is represented and inclusion, where is the power distributed? 
I don't know that ethic, just sort of thinking about ethics is, is going to be sufficient. Um, and that kind of training has to start. If, if our students are being taught to code at four and five years old, I think those conversations have to start at the same age as well, right alongside the skills. We have to have conversations about who benefits from these, these technologies. Um, thank you for that answer, Halcyon. And um, just sort of to, to return to um, the quandary that you, you kind of um, gra- grappling with earlier about, you know, w- whether our imperative is, is to sort of improve these technologies so, so that they um, sort of c- cater for a more diverse group of users um, or whether to resist them, you know, um, in the understanding that the sort of disciplinary and policing kind of um, implications um, at the end of the day are, are worse rather than better, especially for for, for um, different communities. And I, and I suppose one of the things I was thinking about in relation to the question of ethics and, and inclusion also is that we're talking about devices produced by by some of the wealthiest companies in in the world, um, a- a- Amazon and, and Apple, etc., um, who who have risen to the top of of a sort of capitalist system, a platform capitalism, and and ha- have you know um, reaped a kind of unimaginable amount of money for, from sort of extracting data from communities, and, and so just sort of th- going back to the earlier kind of thought you were having about what would constitute a, a revolutionary technology, you know, would it necessarily be a technology not not produced by a company like Amazon or a company like Apple, um, but rather a voice user interface that was grounded somehow in a, in a kind of not-for-profit context? So I, I wonder if you could, you know, say something about um, what, how voice user interfaces could be more revolutionary, um, not just in their design, but in their political grounding. Yeah. There is a tension there, Joel, that um, on the one hand, I think that the, I would make the argument that a revolutionary voice interface would be would come from within a community of color um, for that community of color. The challenge and the tension, of course, is the resources needed to develop that kind of interface are often not available to communities of color. So the fact that we've been training our voice interfaces on a Midwestern accent for the last, what, 50 years is part of the challenge. Well, where do we begin to start collecting voices of community of color, communities of color and not have that, uh, and not have that um, initiative co-opted? I also think even before we get to asking the question about I think a revolutionary device is one that a community has said that they will benefit from, that there is, there is no company or organization or person making those kinds of decisions 
um, and making an argument that this would revolutionize the way that a community does something or accomplishes X. Um, so that that I do think it needs to emerge from within. And, and that's one of the reasons why I think it's, I think that sits with the initiative of individual developers who um, perhaps want to hear their, um, their voices represented, their community's voices represented. And that too is problematic. That, that doesn't necessarily mean that an individual developer understands what's at risk either. Um, but something about being part of that community certainly begins to address some of the concerns that we have about inclusion and, and representation. I think there's an economic cost to the development of these devices in a way that, that other kinds of software might not cost. And so I think, I, th I think the community first has to figure out if that is something that they want. Um, and two, then as a community, they begin to, um, to work towards the, the, re the realization of how that might, might happen. That feels like a cop-out answer. I, I don't have a better one. I, I don't have a better one for you. I'm thinking about, and I, I return to the work of Ramsey Nasser all the time, who has been diligently just plugging away at um, developing a code in Arabic. That is the work of an individual who wants um, to be able to code in his, in his native language that is never going to be the concern of um, a large company unless it is, it is economically beneficial. And even then, there's the politics of, of, you know, that sort of leads to certain kinds of decisions about what, what languages get developed. So I think it sits with individual renegades who want, want to up, upset the status quo. But to do that is it is it's such personal sacrifice. I was just thinking as you were speaking about you know the the the, the discourse of re revolutionary technologies is so profoundly problematic in the first place. I mean, what what precisely is being revolutionized other than the technical paradigm? And you know, so much. I mean, we, we, we we've been thinking a bit with this you know well known work anatomy of an AI system by Kate Crawford and Vlad and Jola, which maps the, um, the sort of e economic and labor and human costs of producing a device like uh, Alexa in, in the case of that, that work. And, um, and it's all for the sake of convenience. And what minor conveniences? I mean, I'm always astounded when people are like uh, obsessed with the idea that they don't have to turn off their light switch, you know, because they can just use it. And I'm like, but there, there has never been anything less worth reinventing the entire technical paradigm of like global society than, than to save you the energy required to turn off a light switch. And so the moment you think that, you know, so much work has been, has gone into making that seem like, you know, revolutionary. I feel a bit of an idiot saying this because it's sort of so obvious, you know, do we want automated cars or do we want public transport? You know, um, but on the other hand, it just remains as true as ever. Like, like what has been revolution, revolutionized other than the technical system itself, which enables the further sale of devices. You know, it's, 
and the further widening of the gap of access. Absolutely. But I would hear our students would make these pitches all the time. And, and every time they made a pitch, it was going to revolutionize. It didn't matter if it was a smoothie app. It didn't. It was always revolutionary because that is the language of the industry. It's how you get funding. It's how you get the support. It has to be revolutionary. And I think the media, I am teaching a class called Science and its Public Audience this semester. And we're looking at the role of the media in picking up these stories and running with it and not critiquing them sufficiently enough that the headlines say very often that it's revolutionary and that there isn't enough investigation, I think, in these articles about what's problematic and what's being reinscribed in these devices. So I, I, I'm, I'm concerned about, it's one of the things that I want my, my master's students to, to have an appreciation for is how do we talk about these, these innovations in ways that I, I think are, in, in ways that, that allow the readers to really understand what's at stake. I don't think that's happening in, in many of these articles that we read. I think we, we, we were interested in um, knowing a little bit more ab about the forthcoming um, piece of writing, um, Siri Disciplines, and um, you, you said a little bit already mm. about the disciplinary um, function mm -hmm. of, of these devices, mm. um, but I, mm. I, I, I wondered, um, you, you know, if, if you wanted to share a little bit more about the, the sort of arg argument that you make there, and, and then we, we, we also had a question about your, your course, um, Siri's Progeny. Um, and perhaps, you know, those two answers are, are, are strongly connected in, in mm. some, in some way, because, uh, well, I, I've got two little kids and so di discipline and progeny have very, <laughs> uh, you know, interrelated, um, questions, but, <laughs> um, yeah, it, 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 if you could, um, expand, expand on that a little bit, that would be fantastic. Mm -hmm. Sure. So I'm really excited about this piece. It's called Siri Disciplines, and it's part of a, an edited collection that is coming out later this year, um, that these chapters and the titles themselves of each of these chapters are a series of provocations that when the editors sort of came together to imagine this collection, it we sort of imagined that it was a challenge to what was going on in, in Silicon Valley, asking of the next generation of technologists to consider, to be able to raise the humanistic concerns in the design of, of the technologies. Um, in many ways, everything that we've spoken about, now that I think about it, that, that article probably is trying to do too much because I think about all of the arguments that I'm trying to make. <laughs> Um, so I, I do think there are, there are many of the things that I spoke about are the arguments that I raise, that I, I make the argument that speech technologies are in no way revolutionary if they're reinscribing bias. Um, I make the argument that speech devices are disciplinary. I talk about sort of the inability to negotiate um, with these devices. Um, I do talk about sort of the very imperialistic nature of these devices and that and that in itself is what for me makes it a disciplinary device i also make the argument that that what's at stake 
And at the time I had conceived that paper, it was a couple of years ago, I was only thinking what was at stake was identity. Um, my, my research has led me to sort of understand and see far more, especially as I see these devices being um, ruled out as surveillance devices. Um, I am increasingly concerned about um, what's what's the cost, but I think the I think the uh, the uh, the conclusion that I come to in that work really goes back to my dissertation research, and I make the argument that there are conditions under which accented speech can be used and deployed in speech technologies that are not problematic and that I make a call to technologists to start thinking about the use that accented speech is not unintelligible speech. There are certainly conditions where it may not be optimal, let's say in the case of an emergency and, and people have to process speech very quickly, maybe you don't want to deploy accented speech in, you know, in a device, that kind of device. But there is value in allowing people to hear a range of accents in these devices because one, we know that our ears can get trained, <laughs> um, but that we need to normalize accented speech. The research shows that accented speakers are seen to be less intelligible. They have different kinds of outcomes in the courts. They have different outcomes in housing and education. That all of these uh, discriminatory practices that, that the people experience in sort of their day-to-day -day lives as as accented speakers, we are seeing replicated in the use of these devices and that there may be value in expanding the range of accents that are available. When you hear an announcement in a, a peer system, for example, that begins to normalize the use of accents for speakers. And you all have been looking at the news. You've been seeing, for example, in the US just, um, you know, people being told to, if, if they want to speak Spanish, go back, you know, to go back to Mexico. And just really horrific um, statements about that, that sort of understand that, that linguicism and accent bias are alive and well. So those are the, those are the things that I, the arguments that that I make in that. Ceres Progeny actually was a, it was a course, a co-taught course. It actually isn't connected to what I'm teaching now. And I have been sort of thinking about ways in which I can bring that. I recently moved to Towson University in Maryland. That course, Ceres Progeny, was a co-taught, co-designed course with a colleague of mine, Dr. Lauren Neef. And it was interesting, it was cross-disciplinary. And we also brought together two different levels of class. It was a first-year composition class and it was a third-year technical communication class and we smushed them together. And we wanted our students, one, because we were dealing with composition and writing, we wanted our students to sort of be exposed to the domain of speech and sound as a domain of composition. 
um, where traditionally they've been taught just about writing um, in the very in the very narrow sense that we wanted to broaden that idea of composition for them. We wanted them to develop listening literacies and sound literacies. Um, but we also wanted them to reimagine speech devices that were inclusive. We wanted them to reimagine, to think about audiences first and what they needed as central to the design process. And so while we weren't asking them to build, I mean, many of these students would have gone on. And as a matter of fact, um, Dr. Neef still has a couple of students who write uh, years later and say, you know, I've designed this thing. Um, we wanted students just to, to think conceptually about the way in which uh, speech and sound design could be different. So I haven't yet found a space for that at Towson, but it's coming. <laughs> I'd take that course. <laughs> it was Definitely. wonderful. As a matter of fact, I remember the time. Um, um, we're not sure how he found it, but the series manager at Apple uh, wrote um, to us yeah. to say, I've just seen your course design. And, you know, I think it's provocative. It's asking the questions that we we would like to answer as well. And yeah, so yeah, I, I do think there is value in um, targeting this challenge at, a, at the stage of education. And by the time it hits industry, I think we've, there's certain battles that we've lost. That sounds really fatalistic, but mm-hmm. <laughs> I can say that as an educator. Oh, that sounds right to me. Yes. <laughs> I don't I don't know if it's an inappropriate question sort of at the end. Um, I just want to thank you again so much for your time. And it's been a really rewarding experience for me to listen to you uh, talking about all these things. Um, you can sort of uh, take this or answer this question how you will. But I was thinking about this this idea of emergency that you uh, just brought up a few minutes ago and just thinking how crucial it is that accented speech is recognized, of course, in emergency contexts, and especially uh, in these situations where we depend on the devices and we depend on these systems and just thinking about how like, you know, maybe in triage or call centers and there's more automation, you know, going hand in hand with a reduction of, of labor forces and things like this, which brings me to disability and um, just thinking about communities um, of people who might sort of benefit or depend on on these devices and uh, yeah the importance in in recognition for those uh, communities and getting it right um, and having them be sort of able to be recognized and have their voice be heard. I guess I just wanted to hear you talk a, a tiny bit about um, both the way that disability is both like a, an, a, an actual community of, of users, I mean, multiple communities of users, mm-hmm. but at the same time kind of functions as a, as almost like a rhetorical figure for these companies. Like, um, like in a way, the student that you mentioned about who is, you know, treating sign language as if it's just something you do with your fingers and not a whole ongoing evolving practice, you know, that involves yeah. gesture more broadly and face and, you know, um, but at any rate, that 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 it becomes like almost a way to justify 
the technological development, but at the same time, it, it, it functions, uh, disability functions as a real practical um, and important um, community of users for whom, yeah, it's yeah. essential that these technologies work. Absolutely. I will say, and I know you're really interested in, in, in any other people that, that you can talk to whose work might be of interest. Um, I don't know if you've come across the work of Meryl Alpel. She has a book called, um, it's M-E-R-Y-L-A-L-P-E-R. And she has a book called Giving Voice that I think um, would, uh, Meryl would definitely be able to speak uh, more comprehensively to this and to the question that you've raised. And I I, I recommend her work. I I recommend you chatting with her. Um, I think one of the things that I appreciate about Meryl's work is, I mean, all of the conversations that we have been having today sort of think about communities broadly. I think once you start talking about disability, you're talking about very niched communities. And that requires, in my mind, and thinking about Meryl's work, requires a different kind of engagement that means that you have to sit with these communities. You have to be able to really understand what the the challenge is, what the problem is. Um, But you also have to ask the questions of the community, what do you want and what is necessary for you? And Meryl's work specifically looks at um, speech devices uh, for children with with speech impediments, speech disabilities, dyslexia, and so on. So I think her work, I, I think she would do a far better, um, offer a far better response. But even as you were asking the question, Sean, I also think of very recently, um, I had the privilege of sitting on uh, a dissertation committee for uh, Dr. Um, Alex Ahmed, A-H-M-E-D, and what I love about Alex's work is, um, so she des- she designed and built a sort of a beta app for voice training for the trans community, so that we one of the one of the challenges of transitioning in that community is often the voice. It is sort of what is considered to be the giveaway. Um, It also speaks to identity, you know, sort of having a voice that represents um, how people see themselves and how they feel they want to be represented. And so Alex, as a trans researcher, sits with this community over a period of months and months and months and co-designs and co-develops this app for the community um and so this idea of it's not even it's not even ethnographic work it is participatory design um and there's something that is so humane and so respectful about the way in which she goes about doing this work that shows up in the design um for example one of the things that strikes me when i look at her when i looked at her 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 um, app 
was just the flexibility. Um, because one of the things you begin to recognize that even though you're designing for a specific community, they're still not a monolith. And so that idea of, of, of flexibility is, is sort of embedded in the design. So I, I think I mean, those are the two people that I would, I'm not suggesting that the trans community is a disabled community at all. I'm just saying that I think there's a research method there that we that we need to consider that that. As even as I describe it, you begin to realize it's time consuming. It requires a certain kind of orientation to research that we typically do and often see in STEM. So I think sort of looking at the work of people who do this participatory research would be interesting. But I also suggest looking at Meryl Alpa's work on giving voice. I think those are two um, researchers that you can you can check out, and I can I can email you. Um, and if you'd like an introduction, I would be very happy to to facilitate that. That'd be lovely. Those are great leads. Thank you very much, Elsie. Yeah, no problem. And allows me to cop out. Now that I haven't thought about it, I just don't think I'm the best person to answer those those questions. Thank you so much. This recording was produced by Mara Schwitt-Vega for Liquid Architecture on the land of the Boon Wurrung and Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land and recognize that sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Liquid Architecture is an Australian organization for artists working with sound and listening. To learn more head to liquidarchitecture.org.au